Man, guys, it is good to see you. Golly, I was, as I was praying and worshiping there on that last song, man, I was just ugly crying. And, um, and I think part of it is, is just my spirit misses you guys. It, it just, I miss the interaction. And, um, we are, we are committed to making sure that we, that we stay healthy and we, we minimize the risk of COVID-19 spreading. We don't want to be a part of a spike. We also need each other desperately. And, um, you know, one of the things, and I've, I've heard people, it's interesting because when you're the pastor, you hear it from all sides, you know, you, I've, I've been told that it's unloving to have church right now during this crisis. I've been told that if, um, if I follow any of the CDC's guidelines that I don't have enough faith, I've, uh, I've had people, um, say that we should just cancel church and just do online church. It's much easier. I've had like all kinds of stuff that I've heard over the last couple months. And, um, and the thing that, that I know is that when God created us, when God created Adam, what did he do? He breathed into Adam and gave him a spirit. And spirit doesn't come through online. Spirit is person to person. There's interaction that happens. And so um, it's one of those things that if you're if you're at home and you're on the fence whether you should come or not, I want to encourage you, come, come. I, I just I believe that there's something significant, there's something special. If you're if you're if you're in a place and you're like I just I don't feel good about it, I fine, that's fine. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, if you're trying to make a decision on whether you should come or not, we're being very intentional. We're being very diligent everybody's in masks, we're, we're not hugging, we're not, everybody's washing hands. I just want to encourage you, we need each other. We are the body of Christ, amen? All right. Um, hey, it is, it is good to be back in, in Baltimore. We, I've had several people ask. Um, many of you don't know that um, at the beginning of May, my dad was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, it the the diagnosis when we heard stage four was terrifying, but his prognosis is actually really good. Um, the thing that my dad was in the hospital for a full month by himself, went from one hospital, was transferred to another hospital for, for another level of care because the cancer had gone to his kidneys and his kidneys were failing. And so he was... Um, the doctor before my dad was released say, said, Mr. Dickey, you were this close to losing both of your kidneys. You just, you are so right on the edge. And um, God provided a miracle for my dad um, to even get him transferred. The doctors were so resistant at the one hospital, small community hospital, to transferring him. But we eventually got him transferred to Barnes Jewish Hospital, which is a part of Washington University Medical Center. And, um, and so we, we're just thankful for what God's doing. He, when we went home, we were able to see how well he's doing. He's not sick. He's not nauseous. He's not losing his hair from the chemo. 
and God is just moving in my dad. Um, the big thing that we're struggling with right now is my dad has been the primary breadwinner for um, for the family, and um, and he's not able to work right now. So we've been working to try to figure out some things for them financially, and and we're working uh, to to get them moved out of a house that they're currently in to something that's a little bit more manageable. So God opened the doors for that um, in just a miraculous way. And so we're just, we're, we're thankful um, for how God's been moving. But today I want to dive back into Revelation. Um, I was talking to Mary about this uh, last night before we went to bed. This Revelation is a tough uh, study because it's largely just depressing right? Because as you're reading it, you're like, okay, I get it. It's bad. It's going to even get worse. Okay. It's really, really bad. Okay. And then it's going to get really, really, really bad. And then there's going to be more judgment and then bad things are going to happen. And then after some bad things happen, there's a lot more bad stuff that happens. And then we go to heaven, right? And so as you, you read it, you're just like, wow, this is kind of depressing. And so I'm, I'm in a place where I'm trying to wrap up Revelation. I really want to get to like the end of Revelation because that's the most encouraging part. And honestly, that's where we're all headed. And so if you're here today um, and you're pressed into a relationship with God, guess what? You get to go to heaven and I'm excited about that day. I literally, guys, I cannot wait I'm on the edge of my seat. It used to be when I was when I was a kid and a teenager, I used to be afraid of of like the rapture coming or going to heaven and, and I was just always like, "Oh man, I don't want Jesus to come back." And now I'm like, like right now Jesus, seriously. You could come back. I don't even care that I've prepared a message. I don't have to deliver it. You know, I'll I would be glad to hear that trumpet blast and to just go be with Jesus right now. I am so ready to be in his presence. This is, my phone's ringing. Hey, just by the way, if if you have a cell phone and um and you are you are trying to to decide whether you should mute the volume or not, let this be a reminder to us all. Just go ahead and mute the volume. Um, and by the way, I'll return your call later. Okay, don't worry. So um, this is good. This is somebody that knows that I preach on Sunday mornings too. It's, you know, but it's, you know. All right, so we're going to look at, I'm going to try to make up some ground. We're going to flip real quickly to Revelation 10, and I'm just going to summarize instead of reading through all of Revelation 10. So what, what I want you to do here is go home and read Revelation 10. And kind of keep some things in mind as you read. Because this is one of these passages of scripture that is supposed to be kept a secret. When, when God reveals this part of the, of the scripture, there are these seven thunders that speak. Okay? And you're like, what are seven thunders? Okay, don't worry about what seven thunders are. It's, it's some type of angelic voice. But here's what we need to understand. There are, there's this mystery that's revealed to John. But John doesn't tell us what it is. It's just a mystery. And it stays a mystery. And, and we talked about a couple of weeks ago the fact that one of the reasons why God doesn't reveal some things to us is because he wants us to seek. He wants us to dig. He wants us to peel back things and say, oh, I want to know more. I want to find out more. And I'll be honest with you, for years and years, I didn't even study the book of Revelation because it was so intimidating. I was like, man, uh, this is just freaky. What if I get it wrong? But, but here's the bigger question. What if you don't study it at all 
And Jesus says that you're blessed if you do. Because we open the book of Revelation with this encouraging word that blessed are the people who read the words of this revelation. So it's not something that should intimidate you. It's something you should dig into because Jesus says you're blessed when you read it. And so I've been blessed by reading it. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't understand it all. I've got a good handle on it. I probably understand it better than the average person, but you know what? I don't have a, I don't have it all figured out. And there are parts when I'll read something and I'm like, oh, wait, well, what does that mean? I thought I had that figured out. I don't know. I'm going to go back and dig some more. I'm going to discover Jesus some more. And here's what happens. The more I dig, the more I discover, the more it reveals Jesus to me. And that's the point. That's why it's called the revelation. It's not the revelation of end times events. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you read this so he can be revealed to you. That's why we study it. So as you read this, there's this, there's this image of this massive angel that comes down and he's so huge. The Bible says that his, his legs are like pillars of fire and smoke. Okay, so kind of takes you back to that image of God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, right? There's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of, of fire. And as they go through, so there's this idea, there's this authority and he stands with one foot on the land and one foot in the sea, meaning that there's kind of dominion over everything. So when he speaks, he speaks with great authority. And then he tells John, I want you to take this little scroll. Now, he gives him this little scroll and don't think of the size of the scroll as being related to how important it is because what he tells them to do, he says, eat this. This isn't the first time in scripture that this happens. I believe it's Ezekiel the prophet is told to eat a scroll and the same kind of thing happens. It says it will go down sweet. In other words, you put it in your mouth and it'll taste sweet, but after it gets to your stomach, it's gonna make you feel sick. How many of you have ever eaten something that tasted so good going down and then afterwards you were like, that's rough. That's the same type of thing, right? And so, so as you, as you read this, the idea is that this is a word from God. So all of the scrolls in the book of Revelation are words from God. And so he says, John, I'm giving you a word and I want you to take it in, but it's going to be a tough one. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard for you to give to the people. It's going to make you feel sick to your stomach. Have you ever delivered some news to somebody that you didn't want to deliver, and the whole time you're preparing to tell them the bad news, it literally just makes you feel sick to your stomach? That's kind of what's happening here in the book of Revelation chapter 10, is that John's got a message to give, and it's so hard to give that he's like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to say anything. Ugh, here it is, okay? So this is kind of the way that it goes. Now, flip over to Revelation chapter 11. We're gonna read the, the beginning of this. There's this, this great mystery that we just talked about in Revelation 10, but now there's um, something new that's happening in Revelation 11. So let's read verses one and two. So it says, then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so 
So there's this revelation now that happens. By the way, does anybody know 42 months, what that translates to in years? Three and a half years, right? So this is the, the midway through the tribulation, okay? So you're looking at the tribulation as a seven-year period. There's three and a half. That's kind of the front end, and then there's three and a half. That's the back end. You guys are following right along. This is not hard, right? So what happens as part of the, the buildup to the second coming of Christ is that the temple is rebuilt. And in Jerusalem, and people have puzzled over this for years because there seems to be this problem uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If you look at the skyline of Jerusalem, what do you see? What stands out? The Alaska Mox, the Dome of the Rock, right? This giant golden dome that you see in Jerusalem. And so people have said, man, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a big war? Is it going to get torn down? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And and many, many scientists and scholars who have studied this, archaeologists actually believe that the Dome of the Rock was built in the outer court of the temple. It doesn't actually sit on the Temple Mount proper. And so many people believe that, and there are organizations, there are at least three active organizations working very hard to get a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem because even um, Jewish people, as they believe, as they read the end times, they believe that this is a precursor to the return of the Messiah. We believe it's a precursor to the return of Messiah too. We just believe that Messiah came once and he's coming again, right? And the Jewish believers don't believe the Messiah has come yet. They believe that he will come. And so, so they're kind of trusting that this uh, temple is going to be rebuilt, the third temple, because there was Solomon's temple, and then there was Ezra's temple, and then there'll be a third temple. And then during the millennial reign, Ezekiel talks about a fourth temple that will be built during the millennial reign of Christ. So it's a, it's a lot of temple talk, right? <clears throat> but I, I happen to believe that when the Antichrist reveals himself, he's going to reveal himself as a peacemaker. We read that throughout scripture, that he is a peacemaker. And, um, and he comes kind of offering a false peace, and then three and a half years through the tribulation, he does a bait and switch. He, he actually shows himself for who he is, and he exalts himself in the temple and proclaims himself to be God and demands that people worship him and this image that is made of him. And there's all of this kind of, it's the abomination, right, that is talking about in scripture. And so I believe that part of his bringing peace to the region will be him completing the building, a rebuilding of a third temple that sits right next to the Alaska Mosque. I believe that the, the Dome of the Rock will stand and the temple will stand right next to it. This is speculation. The scripture doesn't say that. But what the scripture does say is that do not measure the outer courtyard, right? the outer courts of the temple, for it has been turned over to the nations. There are all kinds of nations go and visit the Dome of the Rock, right? And they will trample the holy city for 42 months, right? So I believe that during this time, the outer courts, there's going to be, matter of fact, um, Daniel talks about the fact that there's just a wall that separates the two. Uh, he says between the profane and the holy. And so there's just a wall that separates the profane and the holy. And so as you imagine this image of kind of separating these two, these two sites, the, the temple of God and the mosque. And so as, as, uh, as we read this now, it gets a little bit strange, okay? Because in verse three, we read this, and I will give power to my two witnesses, 
and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. 1260 days is 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years, right? So again, this, this timeline. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. In Ezekiel, um, he talks about that there are, there's an olive tree and a lampstand, okay? And the idea is there is a perpetual oil. In the temple of God in the old covenant, there was lampstands that they had to keep burning all the time as a part of temple worship, okay? What do you have to do with a lampstand? You have to refill it, right? But what if you had a olive tree that was constantly dropping olives and were pressed and turned into olives, and it just kind of was a perpetual motion machine so that the, the worship of God was continuing to flow even in a season where everything was dry. And so that's the idea here is that these two witnesses, even though the people of God are taken from earth, that these two witnesses continue to profess. And it's like this perpetual motion machine. For three and a half years, they just keep prophesying and predicting and and giving out the message of Christ and the hope of glory and the the idea of the second coming of Christ and, and the restoration of the church. And for three and a half years, nobody can touch these guys. And so as, as we read on, it says, um, if anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. So we're like on fire-breathing prophets now, right? This is one of those things that as you read, you're like, whoa, this is like movie stuff. I don't think this is real. And this is where a lot of people get weirded out and they're like, that's so crazy. I don't believe the Bible is true. Who could believe that? Well, I'll tell you who could believe that. The same people that believe that someone could die and rise from the dead. That's who believes that. The same people that believe that one man could live a sinless life and die and atone for the sins of all humanity. Those are the people that believe that. The same people that believe that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that he ascended to be with the Father. Those are the people that believe that. Those are the ones that also believe what Daniel said, that the nation of Israel will be stamped out and they will stop speaking their language, but one day that language will be restored. Guess what? Here we are, 2,000 years after Israel was essentially stamped out and, and dispersed across around the world, and now, on May the 14th, 1948, they became a nation again, and they started speaking the, the language of Hebrew, a dead language. How does that happen? Because God predicted it and said it would happen, and it happened. Do you know the statistical probability of that happening? Almost non-existent. Never happened in history prior. No one has ever revived a dead language to become the spoken diplomatic language of the region. Never. And after genocide attempt and genocide attempt and genocide attempt, Israel stands as a nation. The only superpower in the Middle East. Unbelievable. All right, so here we have the fire-breathing prophets. And every time somebody tries to hurt them, they go and nuke them. How awesome is that, right? And then, and listen what happens. It says, this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. So don't go after these jokers because if you do, 
they're going to fire munch you. And it's gonna be off, right? And so it says they have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and he will conquer them and kill them and their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified and for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages and nations will stare at their bodies. Who is going to stare at their bodies? All peoples, tribes and languages. This was written before the advent of the 24-hour news cycle and satellite television. How many of you guys remember when the Gulf War was going on and you're watching live footage of the Patriot missiles shooting the Scud missiles out of the sky? Anybody remember that? Anybody old enough to remember that? Okay, a few of us. Uh, I'm trying to think of a more modern thing. You know, they had the the wedding for uh, Prince Harry and and Meghan Markle, right? That was advertised. Uh, It was, everybody was watching it around the world except me. And um, it was like this big thing, right? We have the capacity to watch things around the world. Everybody can watch the same event at the same time. How in the world could this have happened prior to? The current age. Unbelievable, right? It says, all the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Isn't it interesting? I think we live in a culture right now that hates truth. We hate truth desperately. And we hate anyone that dares to speak the truth. Right? And the idea is that truth is somehow unloving or unkind and you know what truth is is neither unloving nor unkind it's truth it's set apart it's fact or not fact we live in this age of moral relativism that says hey whatever's true to you is true no that's just dumb either it's fact or it's not fact the idea that you would even make a statement that says there is no truth is a statement of truth Like, how can you say that something, that there is no absolute, absolutely? It defies logic, right? And so so these guys are out prophesying and giving the truth, and people hate them so much because they're telling the truth that literally when they die, people make it a holiday and start giving gifts to celebrate. That's crazy. But that's the world that we currently live in. And it's going to get worse after the church is raptured. Okay, but here we go. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Can you imagine that moment? You're watching live on television and and you've got these prophets. and, And I would imagine, it doesn't say it in scripture, but if we know the way things go, I would imagine their bodies are being desecrated. I would imagine that there's all kinds of things happening to them. We don't know what happens, but all of a sudden on live television, everybody's watching, they're like, is his finger move? It look. I don't know, but it looks like his leg moving a little bit. Does it look like, have I been staring at the TV too long? He's standing up. 
The boy is standing up. Watch out. Now, now, just imagine this. And then it says, then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. To Dow. That's a mic drop moment right there, isn't it? Like if you've been preaching truth for three and a half years and people have been going after you and trying to cut you down and beat you up and people are literally trying to take you out and you're fire breathing them. And then, they're, and then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, I'm floating, right? That's a cool moment, right? That's a cool moment. And so, so we have this. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who the two uh, witnesses are. And the reality is we don't know who they are. They could be anybody. They could be brand new witnesses. They could be, they could be um, saints that have gone before. I, I tend to think um, that it's, I believe that it's Elijah and Moses coming back. And the reason I believe that is because when you read who they are, so they're witnesses, they had to have witnessed Jesus, right, to witness about him. And who are the two guys that show up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, right? Remember, Peter's like, hey, I'll build some forts and we can stay up here and you guys can have a house and we can have a house and Jesus can have a house and we'll all just hang out here together, right? And they're like, Peter, just please, please, okay? And so, so here we have these, these two men. Um, and, and what's interesting is Elijah never died. Remember that? Elijah never tasted death. The Bible says that he was taken away in a chariot of fire. So he never died. Moses, the Bible says that he died, but nobody knows where he is. Nobody knows where he was buried. We know where all the patriarchs were buried. We know where significant figures throughout biblical history were buried. But Moses, the Bible says that God hid him someplace. Where'd he go? I don't know. But I think it's plausible, at least, that he comes back as one of the witnesses. And, and check this out. Listen to, listen to what kind of signs that they gave as, as plagues. It says, um, where's, okay, verse 5. It says, when fire flashes out of their mouths, this is one of those things that makes me think he's Elijah. Because Elijah had a habit of nuking people with fire. It wasn't just that he called down fire on, on the mount, remember, and, and all the prophets of Baal, and they're cutting themselves. And he's like, hey, maybe your God's going to the bathroom or something. I don't know, right? And he's kind of like poking at them. And, and then finally he's like, okay, God, we're here. Here's the water. Here's the bowls. I just wanted to increase the degree of difficulty. Now show them who's God. Foof, and the fire comes, right? Well, there's other occasions where the king tries to send messages to Elijah, and instead of Elijah receiving the messengers, he actually calls down fire from heaven to kill all 50 of the people that come. And so he's like, God, bring fire. And then they send another detachment of people to come to Elijah, and Elijah's like, God sent fire gets them again third group comes and the dude's like hey please don't send the fire don't do i just i don't kill the messenger i just want to tell you something and then like if you want to nuke the king that's on you i'm just saying i'm just here to give a message right and so i think that's plausible and then listen what else happens they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain 
will fall as long as they prophesy. How long are they prophesying? Three and a half years. How long did Elijah shut off the rain? Let's look at it real quick. I think it's in James 5, 17. It says, Elijah was as human as we are. Was he human? Yeah, as human as you are. You're human, right? Everybody said, amen. And it says, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Hmm, that's interesting. That timing is weird, isn't it? And it says, and they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Who does that sound like? That sound like Moses? Turn the water to blood and call plagues from, from, from heaven? That sounds an awful lot. So there's our speculation for today. Again, I won't make a, a declaration because the Bible doesn't declare it. And so because the Bible doesn't declare it, we don't declare it, right? But it's kind of fun to speculate, you got to admit, isn't it? Okay, so um, let's read on now. I'm going to skip over and we're going to look at Revelation 12. And this is kind of something that I think is really important. Um, because this gives you a picture of what is going on behind the scenes. This gives you a look at Satan's game plan and why he does what he does. So let's, let's read a little bit here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And the symbolism is a little trippy. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. It says, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Okay, so, so does this sound familiar to anybody? Do you recognize this from anywhere? Okay, if you go back to Genesis, I believe it's chapter 32, there's this kid, his name's Joseph, and he's got a real snazzy coat, right? You know what I'm talking about? And he has these dreams. And in one of his dreams, he dreams that there is a sun and a moon and 12 stars. And all of the stars and the moon and the sun bow down and worship his star. Remember that? And then he has this other dream about the sheaves of grain and the sheaves of grain. And he decides that it's a good idea to tell his family, hey, guys, guess what? I think this is about you. And I think you're going to worship me one day. It's going to be awesome. His brother's like, not today. And they throw him in a pit and he ends up in Egypt. But what happens? They end up bowing before him one day, right? And so there's this, this crazy thing. So from that moment on, then when you hear stars, sun, moon together in that kind of context, you automatically go back to that moment. So as we're reading here, we believe that the woman symbolizes Israel, right? And so the woman symbolizes Israel. <clears throat> and verse two says, she was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. And so, so out of Israel, who is born? The Messiah is born, right? So who comes from the tribe of Israel? Now, as we look at this, we can go all back through time and we can see that for years and years and years, the enemy's game plan was to destroy the people of Israel. That's been his game plan. That's been his strategy. Why? Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 4, when the curses are being handed out because of the sin of man, what happens? God says, cursed is woman, right? She's going to have pain in childbirth, and she's going to have a seed who will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bite his heel, right? And so Satan knows that 
it's going to be the seed of woman that is going to mash him down, right? So what does he do? He goes after the seed of woman from that time on. What happens? Why does Cain kill Abel? He kills Abel because he was influenced by Satan to do so, because Abel was the righteous seed of the woman. And so he says, if I can stamp this man out, maybe I can circumvent. And so the first murder in history happens, right? And then we have, we have this other issue that rises where, where God says, I'm going to have to destroy the world by flood. And I won't get into all of the different nuances of that, but it's quite an interesting study. If you'd like to talk about it sometime, I would love to have a conversation about the Nephilim and all of those kinds of things. But there is this idea that there was this, Satan is trying to extinguish all of humanity in a single moment and trying to make them irredeemable. But what happens? God saves eight people. And those eight people continue that bloodline. And so now the seed of man comes. And then, and then you move forward and you go to Babylon and Persia and Greece and they all try to stamp out. If you look at, at Haman, right? What does Haman do in the story of Esther? He, he tries to commit genocide for the entire Jewish people. I want them wiped out. Why? Because one dude ticked me off. So I want to wipe out an entire people group because one guy made me mad. Who do you think was influencing that? Of course Satan was influencing that. You go to AD 70, and, and, you, and you look at how Jerusalem was burned. The temple was burned to the ground. And, and during that time, 1.6 million Jews were estimated to be killed. Doesn't it seem like the Jews have been just targeted beyond any other group in the history of civilization to be exterminated, not just oppressed, exterminated. And then you go to, to Hadrian in 135. He tries to extinguish the Jews. Thousands of years dispersed. And then what happens? The rise of Adolf Hitler. Can you imagine? I, there's not a lot of people alive who really remember World War II right now. But can you imagine being the age you are now, watching Hitler rise? I'll bet anything people were thinking that he was the Antichrist, right? I mean, here's a guy that is, is working to unify Europe, right? Bring everybody together. Matter of fact, Neville Chamberlain visited with Hitler and he's like, he's a great guy. Look, I brought back a peace treaty with him. He's awesome. A few months later, right? And, and, and so that's kind of, that's the spirit of Antichrist, right? The, the Bible says that the Antichrist will come, but the spirit of Antichrist already exists. So the spirit of Antichrist is, is moving in the world right now. And he is dead set against the people of God. He's dead set against the people of Israel, and he's dead set against people who believe in the Messiah, right? And so he's out to get you and tear you down if you believe. And so what does Hitler do? Kills more than 6 million Jews. I just finished reading a book about Auschwitz. And the one thing that people were told when they came into Auschwitz is the only way that you will ever leave Auschwitz is through the chimney. And they literally burned bodies all day, all night. 
burned bodies just over and over and over and over. And, and it, was, it was so insidious, so destructive, so horrible. And the idea is we are going to wipe them off the face of the planet. And here's what's interesting. That rhetoric hasn't stopped. We still hear people. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad recently. We want to exterminate the Jewish people from the face of the planet. That's evil. That's insidious. That's the spirit of Antichrist, right? And so, so as we read this, we see all of this happening. It says she was pregnant and she cried out because uh, her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. So again, what is Satan trying to do? He's exterminating the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is Jesus. And then it says, then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Now here's, here's the interesting thing again. What did Herod do right at the time that Jesus was born? Herod the Great made a decree that all babies two and under should be killed. Isn't that crazy? So another Swing by the enemy, this great devouring dragon at the birth of Jesus trying to devour him. But remember, Satan's not omniscient. He's not God. He's not the equal opposite of God. Satan is infinitely small by comparison to who God is. It's impossible to overstate how small Satan is by comparison to God. So he's waiting. He doesn't know who it's going to be. So he says, Herod, you need to make a decree that all the babies get killed. All of the male children get destroyed, right? So that's exactly what happens. So now we read on. It says, she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled in the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. So, so when, when you, you hear this about an iron scepter, an iron at the time of the first century was the strongest metal known to humanity. It was unbreakable. No other metal could come close. The, the Bronze Age didn't hold a candle to the Iron Age. And so, so we have these, these iron weapons. And so as, as Jesus is being described here, he rules with an omnipowerful, omnipotent scepter that cannot be destroyed. And so as we read through this thing, we read about this, this seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. And this is where we get the image, you know, of Satan as this little red guy with a pointy tail, right? That is not what the enemy looks like. That is not what Satan looks like. Scripture says that he masquerades as an angel of light. He's actually appealing. He's attractive. He's desirable. This is a figurative, symbolic language that's used here to illustrate how insidious he is. Okay, and so he's the the author is making this look as just devastatingly vicious as possible. 
Okay, and the ten horns represent some seats of power. Power is always defined as a horn in Scripture. We don't have time to go through all of that, but just suffice it to say that he is incredibly powerful. And then it kind of describes, it goes back and it describes Satan's fall from heaven because Satan used to be an angel. A lot of people don't know that Satan was an angel named Lucifer. And Lucifer was one of the archangels of of heaven. He had access to the throne room of God. And so he decided that he was going to exalt himself and try to dethrone God and take his position and become God himself. And that didn't work out well for him. And God casts him out of heaven. And when he goes, he was able to deceive one third of the angels and take them with him to become his demonic forces. Now, when you look at the seven heads of this dragon seven is not a lot of people say it's perfection it's not perfection it's completeness okay so when he's describing uh, the seven heads of the the dragon he's not describing perfection he's describing completeness of wisdom so he has a tremendous amount of wisdom satan's been at this game for millennia He's a created being, but he's been around a long time and he's been studying human behavior from the beginning of time. So he knows how you think. He knows what you like. He knows what you don't like. He knows what he can trip you up on. And if you'll notice, he doesn't have to get real creative with you because you keep falling into the same sin over and over and over and over again, right? It's not like he's like, man, we really got to change it up on this guy because he just seems to conquer one sin after another. We got to get creative. No, right. He's like, no, he's going to get ticked off. Watch. Now, yep, told you. You see that? That was so easy. That was so easy. Oh, he's going to be alone with the computer. Watch this. This is so easy. I don't even have to be creative. Watch this. I don't even have to tempt him anymore. He just goes for it. Right? And so, so this idea that he's creative, no, he's not super creative. He just knows what will get you. And he'll keep you hooked on the same thing, falling over the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And so as we look at this thing, we see how crafty he was because he was able to deceive a third of the angels. And people are always, man, we read passages like this and we're like, man, he's so big and he's so scary and so, so intimidating. Look, he's a dragon, right? And, and some people say, well, how do you know that's Satan? Well, because verse nine says, this great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all his angels. So if you were wondering, hey, pastor, how do we know that? That's how we know, okay? So, so as you read this thing and you look at it, it's easy to get intimidated and say, oh gosh, this is scary. But can I tell you something? As believers, you have to stop believing the lie of the enemy that he's greater, Because the the word of God tells us that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He is a defeated foe. And God has sent angels to war on your behalf. And guess what? By my math, Satan's horde is outnumbered two to one. I like those odds. I like those odds. So while Satan may get up in your grill, while Satan may bust you up a little bit, remember that's his game plan. I I remember one time I was standing on the uh, deck of an in-ground pool right next to it, and I see out the corner of my eye two guys plotting some mischief. How many of you have ever been in a similar situation? 
And you know what they're doing. You've seen it. And so when they're com- they start barreling at me, and I don't have time to get out of the way, so I know what I'm going to do, right? I can't get out of the way, but because I can't get out of the way, I'm taking them with me, right? And so they come plowing at me, and I just grab a hold of both of them, and we just use all that momentum, and all three of us go in the water together. Can I tell you something? I'm not comparing myself to Satan, by the way, but that's his game plan. He's like, I know where I'm going. I know I'm headed to hell. I know I'm going to be locked up for eternity. I know I can't stop it, but I'm going to take you with me. And we see that whole game plan laid out here in Revelation 12. That's his thing. But if he is outnumbered two to one, if greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, you don't have to go with him. You have a choice. And that choice is Jesus. You, ch- you can't be perfect. Stop trying to be perfect. Start living in fellowship with him. Live in relationship with him. People don't understand that holiness is not the result of your effort. People think, I just gotta try harder. I gotta work harder. I gotta be better. I gotta do more. I gotta, stop it. You can't do it. If there is anything that your life has demonstrated up to this point is you're not that good, but he is. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We hear in scripture, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. If I would just allow myself to give up. We hear that used in such negative terms nowadays, right? I saw a a meme in the middle of the COVID thing when everybody's quarantined and it was somebody that, you know, just let themselves go when their hair was all messy and said, I'd just given up. But here's the thing. If your hair is all messy and you just given up, most of you won't know this about me, but I used to have hair. It was awesome hair too. It was great hair, beautiful hair, powerful hair even. I mean, it was, it was good hair. And it stuck up like vanilla ice. It was like this. And, and like if there was a strong wind, it would push me back. I would have to fight. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't quite like that. Um, but it took, for me to get my hair to do that, I had, I took a, 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 a can of rave, mega hold, stage five. I wasn't even going stage four. I was going stage five rave. And I would blow dry my hair and I would get it to go straight up like this. So I would get it molded with the blow dryer to that basic shape. Then I would hit the whole thing. And then, and then I would just run my fingers through it and make it stand out even better. And then it would dry with kind of that wet look. Oh, yeah. That's how I got Mary. People don't know, but that's how it worked. She walked in, and she was powerless against the hair. So I'm just glad I caught her early because it doesn't work anymore. Now she's just like, till death do us part, you know, what, what are we going to do? So, so, you know, just, I'm just grateful to the Lord for that moment, you know. Um, God loves me. So, uh, so, but what, and the reason I'm going on this hair thing is 
it had to be pliable in order to get it to stick, right? Because once it got like that, the first person that would come along and people loved to mess with me, they would just come and run their fingers through my hair like that. And then it was all over, it just go poof. Because you know, you can't mess with rave once it's been raved. Once it's, once it's been raved, it's on. And somebody comes along and goes, Foop! then you just go, and, and it looks like a, like a dandelion that's all floofed out. And then you got to walk around with floof embarrassment the rest of the day. You can try to go in the bathroom and hit it and try to reactivate it with a little water. Rave is unraved. It's over. And so, so as we are in Christ, we have to be pliable so that Christ can form us. It's in that weakness that he can do something with us. The problem is, is we get so stiff and rigid and, and robotic and we try to be religious because we think religion makes God happy. And God's like, would you just relax? Would you come and sit over here with me a second? Come sit with me for a second. I know you're busy. I know you got religious things to do. Um, but can you just come sit with me? And here's the thing. Here's the thing that, I, that I've noticed. When I'm in relationship with somebody, I tend to just live my life because I love them. I tend to live my life in a way without even thinking about it in ways that don't offend them. If you love somebody, the natural fruit of a relationship with that person is that you tend to just say, oh man, I want to honor you. I, I want to I just demonstrate my love. And it doesn't, it's not a religious duty. It's a relational practice. It's I love you and I enjoy this interaction. And the longer that Mary and I are married, the less we offend each other. It's crazy. Why? Because relationship is the focus. Love is the focus. And there, is, there are things that she does that she doesn't even think about anymore that just, it blesses me. And it's just the fruit of having been in relationship with each other and having been close to each other it just makes it like, oh, wow. This is just beautiful. That's what relationship with God is like. It's not religious practice. It's the power of God at work within you as a fruit of relationship. I want you to get that. Stop trying so hard. I feel like that we're, we're constantly auditioning for God. Trying to get the part. Like I'm gonna work as hard as I can and I'm gonna try to fit the role in because I know this is what it's supposed to look like. And it's exhausting. And I feel like Jesus' word to you today is cancel the audition. You already got the part. Just live in relationship. Just enjoy him. The thing is, is you got to make time for him. You got to make time for him. You can't have relationship with somebody that you ignore all the time. So be careful of that. That's where, that's where the sweet spot is. The sweet spot is in that relationship. But here's the thing. That's where the power is. That's where the overcoming is. You don't overcome Satan because you're stronger than he is. You overcome Satan because you're with Jesus and he's stronger than Satan is, right? I don't have victory over Satan because I'm stronger than Satan. I have victory over Satan because Christ is in me. 
and has seated me in heavenly places. And I have victory over Satan because Jesus is in me. I want to pray over you today. And if you've not made a decision to follow Christ and, and man, as you read the game plan of the enemy and you read what the last days look like. And the reason I'm preaching on revelation right now is because I want this to feel urgent because as I read all of this stuff, I'm like, holy mackerel, this thing's heating up. This thing is heating up. And, and I believe that Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, I want you to be ready. I've never flown all by myself before, but I'm training my whole life for that moment when I get to fly and meet Jesus. Like, I want that more than anything in this world. And I just envision that, that as I'm lifting off the ground, all of the things that were so heavy and burdened me down just start to fade in the background as I get closer and closer to him. Do you know you don't have to wait for the rapture for that to happen though? As you get closer and closer to him, everything else starts to fade into the background. Everything that feels so heavy just becomes lighter because when you are weak, he is strong. So if you want this this morning, I want to encourage you to pray. There's no formula prayer. You know, people say you need to say a sinner's prayer and I don't find that in the Bible anywhere. There's never one time any, anybody recorded as having prayed a sinner's prayer. What there is in the Bible is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So in this moment, if you want to acknowledge Jesus, you just say, God, I believe. I believe you are who you say you are. And I need you to forgive me, Lord. I want to walk my days with you. That's it. It's just sincere. It's a belief. It's faith. I was talking to Mario this morning. My favorite statement about faith is that faith is believing in advance what you will only see in reverse. Faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So, so there are some faith moves that you're going to make now that 10 years down the road you're going to look back at and you're going to go, oh, I get it now. Some of you have already experienced that. But faith is always about believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So right now, just acknowledging God, saying, God, I don't see how the peace is going to come. I don't see how I'm going to live my days not feeling guilty. I don't see how I'm going to be able to make it. But God, I'm going to believe. And I'm telling you, one day you'll look back and you'll go, huh, how about that? I'm going to pray over you as we close this service. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing in us. Thank you for helping us to make sense out of these apocalyptic passages of scripture. Thank you for making it make sense to where I am today and what I'm going through. God, we see the game plan of the enemy. And God, we know that the way that we thwart the enemy is by living in and for you. And so God, today we commit and we recommit our lives to you. And we say, God, we want you to do something in us that only you can do. God, would you move? Would you do something in us? Would you help us to experience your peace? I pray for those who might be here that are praying for the very first time, acknowledging you. God, I pray that they would just sense this switch flip in their spirit and they would know that they've never felt this clean before. They've never felt forgiven like this before. They've never felt the guilt drain away so quickly. But God, here it is. This is the moment.
God, we pray that as we look forward to your return, that we would keep our eyes focused on bringing as many people with us to heaven as we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here.